everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Have Disability, Will Travel, a podcast from the Accessible Travel Forum. Come along for the ride as we go around the world and talk with interesting people who are involved in the accessible tourism industry, or just love to travel and happen to have a disability. My name is Josh, and I'm happy to have you along for the ride. So grab your passport and let's get going. Congratulations! For the first time in the history of this podcast, and if you're counting, we're only on episode 3, we have a guest! Yay! No more listening to me rambling in my apartment, we get to hear somebody else. Today we hang out with Mark Bookman. I first met Mark about 3 years ago here in Japan. Well, the first time we talked was actually on the set of a TV show in Osaka. We had lived near each other at the same station even, in Tokyo. We had passed each other a few times on the street, but both of us, the silly gaijin that we were, just wondered who this other foreign guy in a wheelchair was, but did nothing more than nod. Thankfully, the TV show about accessibility in Japan from a foreigner's view got the ball rolling and we have been good friends ever since. As you listen to the interview, you will quickly notice that Mark is both well-educated and well-traveled. In our conversation, we get to hear how those two parts of Mark's life have shaped his career and led to the creation of an exciting accessibility project. Well, without further ado, here is Mark Bookman. Hi, Mark. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Josh. So, first of all, you're in Philadelphia, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And what do you do there in Philadelphia? Uh, So, I am a a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I study the history and politics of disability in Japan, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, when will you finish your PhD? Uh, So, I've got a couple years left. Basically, at this point, I'm at the dissertation writing stage. So I'm about to head off for a year of research in Tokyo. Oh, okay. So you're coming to my neighborhood then. That's the plan. All right. So in Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love. That's correct? That is true. Is there? Uh, what's your favorite thing about Philadelphia? Well, I mean, the answer has to be the cheesesteaks, right? Okay, good. I'm glad you said that. I was going to say, like, what else do you do in Philly? You go and get a cheesesteak. Maybe you have some cream cheese. But, but no, I, I mean, in all seriousness... The city is great. It's, you know, it's America's first capital. Um, you know, there's the Constitution Center. There's Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. There's the Liberty Bell. You know, there's so much about the city that's, um, you know, it, it really serves to draw people in. And it's just a nice city. People are just genuinely pleasant to be around. Um, you know, Emmerich Street Corner, there's some pop-up uh you know, you'll have like a pop-up bar or you'll just have people walking their dogs and enjoying the nice weather. It's, just, it's a nice place to be, honestly. Oh, sounds good. I remember I went back when I think it was in middle school. Uh, we went there for a family trip and uh, I remember I kept seeing the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme the whole way down. And my parents exactly. got really mad at me. But Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, I, I live uh, right next to the University of Pennsylvania, which is not too far from West Philly. And uh, it, it's still in all of our heads, put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, um, since this is a podcast about accessible travel, um, and it's also an audio-only podcast, can you tell us a little bit about your disability? Sure. 
Um, so I have a condition called glycogen storage disease type 4 rarer variant, okay. which is a mouthful. Um, but basically there are six people on the planet who have it. Oh, wow. It's a neuromuscular uh, condition that basically causes my muscles to get weaker over time. Right. So, you know, I was born 16 weeks premature. Um, and when I was born premature for a while there, the doctors weren't sure if I had, you know, a muscle condition or if it was just a symptom of, of my prematurity. Mm -hmm. So we, we weren't quite sure what was going on for most of the early part of my life. Um, you know, and to put things in perspective, I was the size of my dad's wristwatch when I was born. Oh, wow. So that, that, that should give you some idea of, like, they weren't sure if I was going to live. They weren't so concerned about the maybe, maybe being weaker as a child. Right, right. Um, but anyway, um, because I was weaker, uh, it really affected the way that I grew up. So when all the other kids were out on the playground, you know, running on the swing and running around and playing on the swings, I was inside reading Kant and Hegel and, uh, you know, immersing myself in philosophy, trying to understand myself. Right. Uh, but, um, anyway, that, you know, this was me as a kid. Uh, when I was, um, roughly, Eight and a half. Um, I was actually up in New York, uh, still uh, walking at that point, just kind of doing a, a tourism thing. Mm. And uh, one while I was there, I just collapsed um, and fell on the pavement. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I was on a school trip. There were chaperones there. They were able to get me back home. Mm. I see a doctor, and it turns out that the disease that I have um, had started to affect my heart. Oh, okay. Um, and as my heart got weaker, um, I actually ended up needing a heart transplant when I was 10. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so the, uh, the transplant uh, had me in the hospital for quite a while. I was there for three months. Um, and afterwards, because of the immunosuppression, I was not able to really go out that much. I had to stay inside, and everything was very closely curated to make sure that I would not get sick. Right, right. Um, and a big part of that was kind of taking away, you know, the experience of the outside world and just having fun for me. Mm. Uh, so it was a pretty tough time for me as a kid, but it really instilled me with a desire to go out and experience the world after that. Right, right, okay. So, so it helps you sort of have a, a new appreciation on life and, uh, and think deeper and, uh, you know, really affect the way that you grew up then, I guess. Exactly. So, you know, from, from that point on, as soon as I was uh, relatively stable, um, I started going out um, and going and traveling, you know, all across the U.S., the Caribbean, uh, Europe. Um, and by the time that I got to high school, um, I took that to Asia. I, I, that was my first trip to Japan was as a junior in high school. Okay. So I was looking at your, uh, your list of places that you've been. And mm -hmm. it's quite a long list. Um, I don't know if you want to just maybe tell everybody the places you've been and roughly the ages, I guess. Sure. So I guess, um, you know, before I had the heart failure, I went on one or two trips with my family, not many. I think we did Jamaica and Turks and Caicos. Uh, but after uh, I spent some time in Mexico, in Bonaire, uh, in Tokyo, in London, um, up and down the U.S., uh, the U.S. East Coast, West Coast, Canada, um, 
And I, I just, yeah, then that pretty much summarizes it. Maybe I might be missing one or two. But, <laughs> but you're very, very well traveled then. And yeah. So I see that. So there's sort of if you look at the timeline, then I guess there's time before um, you know your, your heart transplant, and then after that, uh, but also before being in a wheelchair. Um, exactly. Did your outlooks change throughout that when you were maybe so the first times you were more uh, out and about on your own steam, and then after that maybe is a bit more cautious, and then after that again more logistics challenges with being in a wheelchair. Yeah, you know what's interesting. So. Uh, the heart transplant divide is definitely one that changed my outlook. Uh, but my progression into a wheelchair and while using a wheelchair was also very informative in how I viewed my travel and how I viewed um, my experiences. So I went into a wheelchair when I was 20. Okay. And uh, when I went into the chair, um, I was really not ready for it emotionally. Mm. Uh, it was a big transfer between walking most places, uh, either with a limp and then spending time in the chair. So the places that I'd gone in high school, for example, Tokyo, uh, when I went back in a wheelchair, the same spaces that I'd lived were no longer accessible to me because the one step up was now completely um, uh, out of reach. Right, right. Uh, so that really caused me to be a little bit more cautious, a little bit more conservative, um, and a little bit angsty and upset as well the first time. Mm. But, um, you know, it also kind of inspired me to think about, well, wait a minute, how does the, uh, how, how do things change when I change? In other words, how did my wheel, I started thinking actively about the ways that my wheelchair changed how I traveled. Um, right. and that really carried through the, you know, I went to Japan for a third time, uh, after college on a Fulbright. And when I did that, um, it was my condition had progressed to a point where I not only needed a wheelchair, but I also needed a caregiver. Right, okay. So that added another layer of logistics to think about and really mm. brought this home of, well, you know, my condition, it's not just the, the, you know, the equipment that I use, but it's also the people that come with me, the, you know, the interactions that I, that I make between my work or my play and the, the, the people who are around me. So I, it really was transformational uh, for me to see kind of these multiple steps in the wheelchair um, affecting how I travel. Right. Okay. So looking at your list again, and, and you mentioned a couple of times Tokyo, what, what's yeah. been your draw to Tokyo at age 16? What was the uh, reason for coming at, to Tokyo? So I always tell this story because it's just awesome, even if it's true, which is um, I was 16 and I needed a foreign language requirement for my high school. Oh, okay. The, the options were like French, German, or Japanese. Right. And uh, being that I was a big anime fan and kind of a nerd growing up, again, I, I, I attribute that to being inside most of the time. Um, I said, you know what, I'm going to learn Japanese. So I started taking classes. And my, this was coming up on the summer of my junior year of, of high school. Uh, I told my dad, well, look, you know, I want to learn how to play guitar. And it, just, it was in my mind. It's what I wanted to do. Um, and my dad says, well, you have two options. You can get a job or 
you can go to summer school, but guitar is not one of them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, being an angsty, rebellious teenager, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to take this. I'm going to go as far away as possible. So I'd been taking classes in Japanese. I knew like a couple words maybe. Um, but I told my Japanese teacher about this. Uh, not that I had a with my dad, but that I wanted to go. Right, right. Uh, she recommended a scholarship for me. Uh, and I ended up applying and getting the scholarship. But the fun part of the story is my dad didn't know I applied until like a week before I went. Oh my goodness. When he got a call from the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying, we have some questions about your son's health. We want to make sure it'll be okay for him to go. Um, he had this call at work. Let's just say, let's just say that we had a conversation afterward. I can imagine. Yeah, but uh, no. Anyway, so I, I ended up going to Japan. Okay. Uh, he said yes, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was living with a host family. But what really kind of concretized my love for Tokyo was probably a week or two in. I was in the middle of. Takara no Baba Station, which is a train station in Tokyo. Um, and I was on my way to my school. I was studying at, uh, at Waseda University at the time. And um, I was out of money. Uh, my, my train pass had run out by accident. I didn't really speak enough Japanese to get myself out from in between the turnstiles. Um, and I really didn't know where to go or what to do. Right. Uh, so I'm just kind of wandering in circles. This is aimless foreigner. Uh, and someone walks up to me, um, Japanese businessman, probably, you know, 45, 50, and just asks me, you know, where, where are you going? So I tell him I'm going to Waseda. And he takes me over to the kiosk, and he buys me a train ticket, and he walks me down to the platform. He gets on the train with me, and he drops me off at my train station. And then just goes back on and goes back to presumably work. So that was sort of out of his way to go there then? Exactly. It was probably oh, wow. half an hour out of his way, honestly. Oh, wow. Um, but he chose to do it anyway. Uh, and, and that experience really stuck with me. As You know what? This is something that I'd never encountered in the U.S. Um, and I wanted to learn more about like what is the culture that could make an experience like that possible. Um, so that, that really kind of stuck with me, uh, and guided my actions, uh, as I came back, finished high school, went into college and, and kept going. Okay. So your impression was that Japan sort of this, uh, unique place that has a different kind of uh, driving force than maybe experienced in the States and it sort of stuck with you and you wanted to know more. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So. Wow. Okay. So then, um, that was, you also came back when you were 20 as well. Yep, that's correct. So, you know, I, I when I was in college, um, as I mentioned, I went into a wheelchair uh, earlier in that year. But as I went into the wheelchair, in between then and when I went to Japan, I actually had a bout of heart failure again. Okay. Um, and that required me to be out of touch with the outside world, so to speak, for... Um, the better part of six months. Mm. 
And again, just like when I was younger, uh, I, I had that sort of wanderlust instilled with me uh, after being inside for so long. I said, okay, I've got to get out, and I can't just go to, like, you know, Washington, D.C. I have to go back to Japan. Right. So with that said, I rushed to uh, find a way back, and the school that I was at had a study abroad program. Uh, so I went via um, a study abroad program to Sophia University, where I studied for, uh, for six months. And that, that experience was also very transformative for me. You know, I'll never forget uh, day one, uh, I had just signed up for classes and I needed a theology requirement for my, my undergraduate school. So I said, okay, I'll find a Japanese course on religion and I'll do that. Um, well, I show up in this course called Philosophic Approaches to Buddhism. And, uh, you know, it, it, it had philosophy in the name. I'd been reading Kant and whatever from the time I was a kid. Right. It's, it sounded interesting to me. Um, well, day one, my professor, who was a French Jesuit priest and also a Buddhist monk. It's <laughs> uh, a great combination. Right? Uh, so, so he shows up to, uh, to, to the classroom. There are three of us around the table. And he pulls out like a hundred um, pieces of paper uh, in like that are paper clipped together, and just like slams them on the desk mm. uh, and passes them over. And I'm looking at you know classical Chinese written in you know the, the ninth century, and he's like, by the end of the semester, you will have read all of this and understand it and be able to talk to me about it. This was in English or Japanese? Uh, you said this in Japanese. Um, okay. and, and again, this was all written in classical Chinese, right? So right, right. Uh, my Japanese was about good enough to ask where the restroom was at this point. <laughs> Maybe a little bit better, but nowhere near what I would need to broach these texts or even speak with him about why I was hesitant to do so. Hmm. Uh, but anyway... Uh, I chose to stick with it, and over the course of the semester, I really found myself uh, getting into it and understanding it and falling in love with what I was doing. Um, you know, what I was reading about was processes of, um, you know, how reality is constructed and what it means to have, you know, difference bodily, linguistic, or otherwise. And it was oh, a lot of the same kind of issues that I've been grappling with in my personal life for so long, I saw being discussed in this text, and I was fascinated by that. So it really spoke to you in, uh, in quite a deep way then, I guess. Exactly. So, you know, I, I took that experience, um, which was not just in the classroom, but outside. It was, t you know, taking that text and going around to Buddhist temples and shrines and trying to learn a little bit more about Japanese religion. Um, all that really kind of instilled me with a drive um, to study it more. So, you know, by the time that I got back uh, to finish my undergraduate degree, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something with religion. I, I wrote my senior thesis on uh, comparative philosophy in Japanese Buddhism and uh, Western uh, epistemology. But... Um, you know, I, I knew that I needed to go back and do more, 
And that's what really brought me back to Japan the third time when I applied to do my Fulbright. That was trying to do more Buddhist studies research and continue the, the experience that I had when I was there when I was 20. So the time when you were 20, you were already in the wheelchair or you... Yeah, I, I was in the wheelchair, but I was in the wheelchair part-time. So. Oh, okay, so just going long distances, but then you can get out and walk around if you needed to kind of thing. Exactly. So like when I was, I was able to walk around my apartment, um, you know, walk to the bathroom, things like that, that I was not able to do um, the next time I went. Um, so, so those had, again, a sort of a transformation of consciousness from when I had first gone uh, and I was walking full time, I was able to get pretty much everywhere to, well, now I can only use the wheelchair to get some places, uh, and that created its own barriers. So, like, for instance, I had to learn how to navigate the train system in a wheelchair, mm. which required a number of steps from, right. yeah, um, or I had to learn how to, um, you know, make different types of accommodations from the students around me in terms of finding hotels or, you know, even taking exams at school. Right. So there was a lot of things that I had to figure out, um, in cooperation with the people around me that I, I had not experienced before. Right. Well, I've been to some uh, universities in Japan, uh, just for various activities and in comparing them to my time in Canada, I found that a lot of the universities were not very, accessible maybe there if there was a ramp it was sort of slapped on maybe some of the newer buildings had you know accessible toilets and elevators but there were a lot of buildings that were pretty not so great or your experiences yeah I, I mean i've studied at a number of schools i've studied at Toyo university sofia university Waseda university i'll be at the university of tokyo this time around and um and most of the places that i've been do not have great physical infrastructure uh, for students with disabilities, uh, for students or uh, community members with disabilities. Um, you know, there's a history behind this, there's a politics behind this in terms of how much space is available, what the schools have. Uh, you know, th th there's a question of what would it take to transform these spaces, and, and that's, that's my research. I could go into that all day, but. But, but, but let, let, let's just say that for right now, um, I found that from the standards of an American with a big power wheelchair, right. um, a lot of these spaces are inaccessible. Um, and now the, the, the interesting thing, uh, again, I don't want to go too, too far down this rabbit hole, is, you know, would it be different if I was in a smaller Japanese wheelchair or if mm -hmm. I... Uh, was operating with other types of accommodations that I would be able to use, uh, probably. Um, so I think one of the questions is not, you know, just how inaccessible is this space, but what, what do we, where does the negotiation lie between what they can do and what we can do to make sure that the space is usable, right? Right, right. So actually, um, you haven't, I think, told anybody yet, but... Uh you were the first uh, Fulbright scholar to Japan in a wheelchair then? That's correct, yes. Okay, well, so how did the staff react to that? Were they overly concerned? Were they, you know, sort of nonchalant about it? Or did you have, a, have to sort of convince them that it would be okay? Uh, so thankfully, there was a little bit of precedent in that 
I was also the first wheelchair user to do my study abroad program oh, uh, okay. at So um, because I was the first wheelchair user to do that program, um, thankfully that was from a big international you know, study abroad conglomerate who had some experience dealing with students with disabilities elsewhere. Right. So they had an infrastructure in place that they could at least have a conversation about what that would mean for me. And then those conversations served as my uh, the basis for talking with Fulbright about what could be done, should be done, how I could be accommodated. Um, so I put the, the, the study abroad collaborate in touch with Fulbright, actually, um, and, and they were speaking a lot to each other. Uh, but meanwhile, I was also doing a fair bit of convincing on my end, trying to make sure that everything worked. Um, but really, I have to say, you know, all parties were amenable and trying to make sure that I would be able to do my, to do my study abroad um, to the point where, you know, initially I had applied to do my Fulbright out uh, at Koyasan, which is a mountain uh, out past Kyoto, um, <laughs> Western Japan. Uh, and it's, let's just say, studying at a Buddhist temple on top of a mountain is probably not the most accessible thing. <laughs> probably um, not. But um, they were still willing to, to try and make it happen. You know, they were saying, like, if we have to, we'll build you a place to live. Oh, wow. That's a really great reception. Yeah. You know, like, they're really, I found nothing but a desire to make accommodations and make uh, Japan uh, a more accessible place for, for people with disabilities. Mm. Uh, even if these infrastructural barriers exist, there's a desire to do something about them. And, and, and then there's just a question of what does that conversation look like? And, uh, and again, how do we proceed? But no, Fulbright, um, you know, they were a little bit hesitant just because they didn't know how to proceed. Mm. But I think after having these conversations uh, with myself and with some of the other places I've worked, they were, uh, they were excited about the possibility of having me. Great. Well, I'm sure that your trailblazing will make it easier for the next person as well. I hope so. As long as they don't go to Mount Koya, that is, anyways. But well, that no. is. <laughs> right, okay. Well, that sort of transitions to our uh, sort of your next stage, I guess. Um, I've read in a couple articles that that time in Japan uh, had a real impact on what you're doing now in your sort of extracurricular activities. Um, yeah. So you're involved in something called AMP. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I'm the, uh, the principal investigator and founder of the Accessibility Mapping Project, or AMP. And basically, this is a digital interface uh, for mapping the emergence of uh, physical and social barriers uh, in public and academic spaces. Okay. Which is a lot of jargon to basically say, imagine a map. And it's a map that anyone can contribute to by going on their phones uh, to say that the place that they are is accessible or not, and they can describe why. Um, and imagine this map updating in real time. So basically, if I'm going around and I find that, you know, Koyasan really isn't that accessible, or uh, the, you know, my, my school has... Uh, you know, a, a couple steps up where I can't get to this room, 
and that you know those those few steps are probably not going to be marked on a, a map. Mm. Uh, I now have a way of of, of showing that uh, it uh, the, the tool that I use shows pictures, audio, video, and text. Okay. So it gives a, a multi-dimensional account of what that access looks like. So and anybody can um, contribute to this map then. Exactly. Yes. Um, so, so for right now. Uh, I've been limiting it to my own university, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, as a beta test. Right. But the plan is to take it with me to Japan when I go in a couple weeks. Right. Uh, and and start deploying it around Tokyo to um, to really see how accessibility is changing in real time and and what people have and what's working and what they don't have and what they want. Mm. So have a broader conversation about how to make space more accessible. Well, two things that I really like. I like that, uh, first of all, um, that you can also put in places that are not accessible. I think I've seen some other mapping places, but um, they often focus on this place is accessible, but you can't necessarily say that it isn't accessible. So, you know, having that information also is extremely valuable. Um, but also the fact that there's a lot of freedom in uh, the input uh, that you have. So it's not only just a picture or, um, just a small bit of text or, uh, you know, a star rating or something like that, that you can actually put a lot of detail in that. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes back to something I was saying earlier, which is, you know, a bulky power chair and a small manual wheelchair are both wheelchairs. And when you look at wheelchair accessible entrances, they don't specify, right? Mm. So I think that you have to be able to have some way of getting the information of, I'm in a power wheelchair and this would be accessible to me or not. Um, and it's not just wheelchairs. So when I talk about access, I'm talking about everything from, you know, wheelchairs to gender neutral bathrooms to, you know, lactation spaces. Right. I, I'm talking about the, the basic resources that we need as a community hmm. to make spaces work for us. And it's not defined for me in terms of, you know, disability or ability. I don't believe in that, that binary. I, I think that there's so many shades of access that we need, that we need a, a good way of reporting all of those details. Mm, exactly, exactly, yeah. And, and again, that, that's um, that's kind of the driving force behind the project. Okay. How, how has the reaction been? Has the school been quite supportive? Or have you sort of tried to, had to push it through your own way through? You know, I was actually very surprised at how supportive they've been. Um, they've uh, donated a ton of time and money and resources to help get this project off the ground. Um, you know, I conceptualized it probably eight months ago, um, and we had software online three months later. We've mapped 60 or 70 buildings around campus. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's been, it's been progressing pretty fast. And we're at a point now where there are... If there are any concerns, it's just a matter of internal security. So, especially in the U.S., when unfortunately we have school shootings fairly mm. frequently, uh, you don't want to be giving out too much information about what the insides of buildings look like and emergency routes and things like that. Right, uh, right. A lot of that kind of falls behind privacy walls. But there are still ways of talking about access that don't necessarily have to give you every nook and cranny of the building. Mm. Um, 
so so that's um, that's one barrier that I've encountered in, in facilitating the project. But um, and there have been ways around that as well. So, so, so I think um, really on the whole, the university and the community of Philadelphia has been very supportive. I mean, we're not just drawing in volunteers from you know students, faculty, and staff. We're getting people coming in from the mayor's office, from the professional representative's offices. We're getting uh, regular community members taking part in this process because we want it to be as open and inclusive as possible. Um, you know, it's my view that even though I'm at a private university, that space is in the middle of a major city. It's, it's used by, you know, plenty of people who are not members of that university and community, um, at least formally. Um, and I think that access should be open to everyone who would use that space. Right. I, I saw on the website that you have sort of special events where you go and everybody goes and does mapping together or they choose a building to, you know, try to do thoroughly kind of thing, right? Yeah, so, so, so one of the things behind the project, um, first off, having, ma- I call them mapathons. Okay. Having mapathons is useful because it, it gives you uh, a tool for showing how to use the app. Right. Uh, so, you know, I have an instruction manual and all of that, but still, having someone be there to kind of show you what to press and what to do um, is helpful. Um, so it gives us an opportunity to give training in it. And then presumably that training can be taken outside of our event and used uh, to teach someone else or used uh, on, the, on the person who we're training's own time uh, to map uh, other places. But um, the, the one really unexpected but delightful thing about these events is that they actually facilitate a transformation of consciousness hmm. when it comes to access. So, so let me tell you what I mean by that. You know, I would say out of most of the events we have, we pull in you know, maybe 20 or 30 people per event. Um, and most of them are not people who you would traditionally think of as disabled. Right? Okay. So there are individuals who are, you know, walking, playing sports, running around, you know, um, who we would tend to think of as able-bodied people. Mm. Um, and when you, when you walk around with them with the app, and you say, well, let's look at this door. You know, this is a bathroom door. It says that it's accessible, but uh, there's no push plate to open it. Or it says that it's accessible, but the Braille signage saying it's a bathroom is out of reach for a wheelchair. You know, it, it, it's little things like that that you can point out. And by showing them in the process of mapping where these barriers to access lie, mm. it can actually be a great educational tool for getting them to notice those barriers outside as well. So it, it really changes how they think about the spaces that they use each day when you can show them what a barrier to access actually looks like and they're forced to you know, input it in the system themselves, kind of seeing what's there. Right, right. I think that having experience and, uh, you know, hands-on, uh, you know, t- at times like that is really important to helping people have a deeper view of accessibility. So right now, um, your coverage area is mostly the university. Do you see this as a tool for universities specifically or 
something that can be universally applied to, you know, say maybe tourist locations or just the city in general? Uh, I would love to see it be universally applied uh, to both the city and tourist locations. Um, I think that there are a couple uh, kinks that I have to work out just with the software. Um, you know, I am not remotely a software engineer. I am a, you know, a, a disability studies humanities scholar. So, uh, you know, I, I've left most of that in the hands of the volunteers who are willing to help me. But, um, you know, we don't have a professional programmer on board who is able to develop a, a broad scale interface yet that would be able to accommodate all those different types of spaces. My hope is that um, as I develop the project a little bit more, I'm going to be pitching it for some grants and some funding. And hopefully uh, through those or through volunteers, I'll be able to find someone who could develop it with that functionality. Mm. But it's outside of my personal area of expertise. Right. So there's, there's the hope, um, but we'll have to see what happens. So but anybody who's uh, listening to this podcast now could go sign into the project and uh, upload data from places near them right now, right? That's correct. They, they would. Uh, they're definitely able to. It's just a question of what, how would that show up on the existing map? Because, again, it's, it's currently con- confined to pen in terms of what you see. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's a matter of clicking a button and saying we want it to be global for it to be global. Right. Okay, neat. Um, do you have any plans for collaborations with other groups or um, sort of maybe down, down the line or anything like that? Um, so, yeah, there are a couple groups that I would love to work with. I, I know um, in Japan there are a couple similar initiatives. Uh, there's BMAP, there's Wheelwog. There, there's a couple other mobile apps that are trying to map access, um, and they all have pros and cons. A lot of them are definitely more developed than mine in terms of the software, um, but I think theoretically speaking, there are limitations to their approach that I would be able to help them with and vice versa. Mm. So I would love to work with some of these organizations and some of these existing applications uh, to develop a more robust access mapping system that can have the best of all worlds, right? Right, right. So, you know, when I get to Japan, I'd love to have that conversation. And uh, indeed, you know, around here, we have a couple people doing uh, access mapping initiatives that I've been trying to work with as well. Um, just locally, because, uh, you know, the, the, I found that, especially in the last couple of years, the idea of mapping access has become such a big phenomenon with, you know, places like Google introducing wheelchair-accessible routes for a lot of cities and, um, you know, Yelp having wheelchair access on all of their reports. Right. That it's become a very big thing. Um, so now I just think we have to develop the right tool uh, to make it useful, um, especially for people who are tourists, uh, who are you know foreign travelers who might not know the space as intimately, mm. um, and benefit from that type of advice. Yeah, I was really excited when Google introduced that, but th- I found that you know Google is sort of uh, is very wide but not very deep in terms of its data. So yeah. it's got a lot of data on a lot of little things, but it doesn't have maybe necessarily the most useful or data that you have, uh, you know we find the most helpful, whereas a lot of the disability apps tend to be um, not as wide, but much more, uh, you know, have a depth to them that makes them much more useful. You know, there's a negotiation of resources always. I mean, I think mm. 
my, my, my problem with Google in particular is actually strictly in terms of data management. You know, they own all their data. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you want, you know, wheelchair users or anyone to feel comfortable submitting reports about, you know, something as sensitive as access, um, you don't necessarily want all that data being curated by a major corporation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's also this question of what, um, you know, what, what is the best way to collaborate with large corporations so that they can get enough of kind of the picture that they're trying to paint, but um, don't necessarily put people at risk. Okay, great. Okay, just sort of as a bit of a wrap-up, I have a couple of questions I always like to ask people. Um, sure. So to you, Mark Bookman, what does travel mean? Why is it important to humans? Oh, God. Um, so travel is... Travel is how we come to learn. Travel is... It's, it's how we experience the world around us. It's how we understand everything from politics and ethics to morality uh, to art and um, science. It's simply a, it's pers- at the end of the day, it, it is perspective. It, it gives you the opportunity of re-examining yourself, your own life, your own culture, your own context uh, in a way that can be wholly productive. It lets you change yourself in a way that you think is uh, is useful, and and it lets you do things that, at the end of the day, I think will make you happier. You know, if, if you have a point of comparison, you can choose between them, and without traveling, you can't do that. Mm. So, so I almost view traveling as, you know, not almost, I do view it as the most important facet of life. Um, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was say, so it's much deeper than Instagram pictures and uh, and stuff like that, then, right? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I mean, I think the Instagram pictures are definitely part of that. I mean, they, you know, when you're showing people Instagram, it's, it's letting you get other people engaged in that conversation. It's letting you uh, have, you know, again, perspective generating moments where if everyone is saying, oh, your picture is awesome, I want to go, that makes you feel good, number one. But number two, it lets you meet people and do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Right. Uh, so so it, it's definitely part of the conversation. And I think that there's no individual part of travel that you can latch on to and say, you know, this is the most important part of travel. Right. Um, but I think that the experiential aspect of it uh, as the defining aspect for me is what I would say is crucial. Um, you know, it, it's coming to reconceptualize the world around you and learn. Mm. That's an excellent answer. Um, okay, besides uh, Mount Koya, uh, can you tell me your bucket list of top three places you'd like to visit? Sure. Um, in Japan or just generally? Um, okay, we'll let you have one in Japan, but then two outside of Japan. Okay. Uh, so, in Japan, probably... You know, I've never made it to Nagasaki, and I would love to go. I've been to Hiroshima, um, but uh, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to see uh, what Nagasaki looks like these days. I haven't, I, I really haven't been. 
So that's one that's on my bucket list. Um, outside of Japan, I would love to go to Geneva. Um, and I would also like to go to, uh, you know, I've, I've always had this desire to go to Germany and Berlin. Um, you know, I, I've never been, I've read so much about it and the pictures I've seen all look phenomenal, mm-hmm. but it's, it's never, it's never, ha- it hasn't happened yet. Okay. So that's nice. Well, you can probably get uh, Nagasaki off your list maybe this time when you're in Japan. And, yeah. uh, it, it's got, uh, I think one of the top three, uh, in terms of uh, the evening views from the top of the mountains, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, okay, so sorry, moving on to music. Sorry, I love music, and uh, I think that's sort of a big part of travel um, because I always like making used to make a playlist for my CD player or whatever whenever we went on a family trip. Uh, do you have uh, maybe two or three songs that you like to listen to when you travel, and we can put on a, a Spotify playlist of um, you know? Um, accessible travel tunes or something? Sure. Um, so my tastes, I'll start off by saying, are ridiculously eclectic when it comes to music. And that's the best way? Yeah, so, you know, if I'm going somewhere that I want to be amped up for, like there'll be a ton of people and I want to get ready to kind of just rush around, I'll probably listen to um, One OK Rock has a song called Clock Stripes that I really like. Yeah, that's a Japanese band, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if I'm around here, uh, I really like listening to. If I'm if I'm working, I'll put on classical music, uh, and I'll probably put on something like, uh, you know, Mozart's Lacrimosa, or something like that. And when I'm typically when I'm traveling, I'm on the train or I'm on the plane, and I'm pulling out an essay to work on. So I listen to that fairly frequently, actually. When I'm in rap. Um, and otherwise, um, you know, if I'm just out, for, for example, relaxing by, uh, by a field or maybe I'm at a beach and I'm having, you know, some, I'm, just, I'm thinking about fried chicken and a beer because that just sounds so good. But, um, you know, if, I, if I'm out just kind of like enjoying that type of environment, I'll go to classic rock and I'll listen to like, you know, won't get pulled again by the who or something like that. Um, just kind of enjoying the summer environment, which, uh, looking out my window, I may or may not be able to do today. We'll find out. Okay. Well, it's going to be quite an interesting playlist. I'm looking forward to hearing it. So, okay. And then finally, I'm just, you know, how can people be in touch with you? First of all, for the, um, accessible mapping project, um, if you maybe tell us the URL for that, or maybe the best way to find it on Google. Sure. Um, so if you Google um, Accessible Mapping Project at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm just double-checking to make sure it works. Right. <laughs> you should be able to have that come up, no problem. It does, I just double-checked. Okay, so Accessible uh, Mapping Project at Pennsylvania University. Oh, sorry, University uh, of Pennsylvania. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, and I'll give you the URL just in case. Okay, we'll put that in the show, no- show notes then. Um, and how about for yourself personally? Do you have a, a blog or Twitter or anything that people can follow? Yeah, so I, I have a website, um, and I'll give you the URL of that as well. Um, I keep a blog on the site, but I also update, uh, you know, recent stuff about my my research on access, my experiences, um, and 
some of the some of the projects that I'm working on in terms of trying to make um, Japan and the U.S. Uh, more accessible. So um, if you want to see kind of updates about that or updates about um, just my travels in general, you'll be able to see them all there. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I'll be sure to put that in the show notes and then everybody can follow you then and uh, see what you're up to. See if you can get to Mount Koya or not. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for your time and um, looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks here in Japan. Yeah, thanks so much, Josh. Look forward to seeing you. All right. You take care. All right, bye now. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I encourage you to check out the Accessibility Mapping Project and to follow Mark online. He is also on the Accessible Travel Forum, so you may want to connect with him there as well. www.accessibletravelforum.com Be sure to ask questions and share your knowledge. The more users we have, the more useful the site will become. You can also follow us on Twitter at AccessibleTF. That's at AccessibleTF. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Also, if you have anybody that you think would be a good interview, that could be yourself included, please contact us at podcast at AccessibleTravelForum.com. That's podcast at AccessibleTravelForum.com. But keep enjoying your travels. Hopefully we'll bump into each other somewhere along the way. Until next time, I'm Josh, and this is Have Disability, Will Travel.